This is an ABC podcast. The information you hear in this podcast is for your education and entertainment purposes only. The ABC accepts no responsibility for improvements in your performance at work, advancement in your career, better relationships with your colleagues, or simply being a whole lot happier at work. Listen at your own risk, but share with your friends. As one founder I talked to from my most recent book said, you know, one of the biggest things I've realized is that anybody can sit in a chair for 12 hours a day. I used to hire for that, but it doesn't impress me any longer. What really impresses me is the person who can do that job in six hours and get out of here. That's the person I want to hire. And I think that's the person we should all try to be in the future. But it's the choices you make about what you do with that time that can actually help you perform better and think more creatively at work or not. For example, have you ever wondered why sometimes you have your best ideas in the shower or walking the dog? Well, there's science behind that. I'm Lisa Leong and we just heard there from Dr Alex Pang. Alex consults with companies to help them strategically implement rest to shorten their workday. He's also written two books related to this, Rest, Why You Get More Work Done When You Work Less, and his latest, Shorter, Work Better, Smarter and Less. So sit back and relax, because today on This Working Life, in the last in our series about productivity, it's all about rest. Actually, if he had his way, Alex would be having you playing tennis or painting a picture, but we'll get to that in a minute. You have a PhD in the sociology of science. So how did you become interested in the research around productivity at work, Alex? I've always been interested in kind of practice and in work. Even when I, when I was writing my dissertation, I was trying to make sense of how actually, you know, astronomers organized expeditions and how they used instruments and so on. And so all of my work, whether as a futurist or an historian or, you know, as a popular writer, has dealt with issues around work. But a few years ago, I realized that when we talk about productivity and work, that really focuses us exclusively on kind of what people do at their desks and what things you consciously engage in in order to make yourself more productive or to get more done. And I realized that framing it that way leads us to miss an important part of kind of the story of creativity and productivity, which is what we do when we're not consciously working. Right, and it turns out that and that uh, that basic insight was behind my a book about rest and its role in the lives of really creative people, and now my latest book about you know how companies um, implement four day work weeks and shorter work weeks and how they see benefits in terms of higher productivity and creativity across their organizations. So you call it deliberate rest. Why do you focus on the fact that it's deliberate rest? Well. The concept is partly a play on this idea of deliberate practice. Um, the late sociologist Anders Ericsson talked about this as kind of the key that you see sort of world-class musicians or chess players or athletes sort of using to become really great at what they do. And deliberate practice has a few specific qualities. It's not just doing reps and scales. Um, it's very focused. You are concentrating on particular kinds of improvement. But 
Erickson also in that study noticed that the people who engage in deliberate practice not only practiced more than the average chess player or musician, but they were also were also were better at explaining how they rested. They rested less, but they were much more thoughtful about it, much more deliberate, as it were. You say that um, rest you had some science behind it. So why do we need rest? Fundamentally, you know, we need rest in order to recharge the mental and physical energy that we spend when we're working. But it's also the case that periods of rest are valuable for helping us be more creative. When you kind of shut your mind off, or at least just relax, it turns out that your, you know, your brain doesn't kind of switch off, even though it kind of feels that way. Your brain actually gets super active, but just in a way that you're not conscious of. And what happens then is that your brain starts working on problems that you've recently been trying to grapple with but haven't solved, and often will come up with solutions that have eluded your conscious conscious efforts at attaining. We have a really simple version of that, which is, you know, every day we go through this thing where, you know, you try to remember some fact, right? Who was the actor who was in this in that movie and that TV show, and you can't remember who they are, but then five minutes later you're doing something else and they're, you know, and all of a sudden the name pops into your head. And that is that part of your brain, the default mode network, as scientists call it, continuing to work on problems even while you're doing something else. And what really creative people do is organize their days so that they are partly doing really focused, intensive work, but they also set aside time for the default mode network to do its thing. And the periods where you do that most prominently are the periods where you engage in deliberate rest. And so what types of things fall into that category then of deliberate rest? So we often think of rest as mainly involving sitting on a sofa with a remote in one hand and salty snacks in the other. But in fact, or the kinds of rest that give us the biggest creative boost tend to be ones that get us up and moving. So going on walks or hikes, gardening, um, swimming is a popular one because, you know, you're kind of closed off from the world and your brain has time to kind of reflect on things. And then there are people who also use hobbies as a way of giving themselves time to get into those states. So people who, for example, are serious, like mountain climbers or long-distance cyclists, often use those periods both to get out of the office, but also to give their subconscious time to explore ideas and to find solutions that they can't find, you know, sort of back at their desks. And in fact, in your book, um, you mentioned Winston Churchill. What was his hobby? So his hobby was painting, and he had a delightful little book about it called Painting as a Pastime that explained why it uh, that talked about it. And he said that busy people who spend a lot of time at their jobs, who like what they do, need a break every bit as much as people who hate their jobs. In fact, more so because you're more likely to burn out. But you need to find something that is kind of different from your day job, but offers some of the same kinds of satisfactions. And for Churchill, painting fit that bill because, first of all, in both politics and in painting, you literally need a clear vision of what you want to do. You have to be thoughtful and kind of strategic about how you use your resources. 
For Churchill, though, it also was cool because you were working in a very different kind of medium. It was very visual rather than verbal. And it was satisfying because while he was painting, he didn't have the labor party like trying to erase what he was doing <laughs> as he went along. Um, so it was all the stuff that he liked about political life without the frustrations. And Churchill is a really nice example because the kinds of hobbies that often very time-consuming, sometimes even physically dangerous, that people will engage in have that quality of both being or of very different, but offering similar kinds of psychological benefits to work when it's at its best. Alex, how often do we need to take this deliberate rest? For knowledge workers, I think that you know deliberate rest is something that ideally you work into your daily schedule. When you look at the daily routines of people like Winston Churchill or famous writers or Charles Darwin, you see that they, you know, when they could, they would organize their days into periods of really intensive work, like three or four hours long, and then broken up by periods of deliberate rest. And if you've got the option to do that, then that is terrific. That alternation between sort of mental focus and mental relaxation can be a great cycle to both stimulate your creative imagination, but also give you the time to recover from those sort of bouts of intense work. If, on the other hand, you don't have that kind of control over your own schedule, then having hobbies, having things that allow you to detach when you go home and on weekends and on vacations is really, really important. Do you think part of the problem is that we link productivity to time spent doing something? Yes, absolutely. It is an attitude that sort of makes an intuitive sense if you're like working in a factory or you're working out in the field. But with knowledge work, it's rarely the case that spending, you know, 12 hours at your desk working on something yields better results than, you know, working six hours and then taking time off once you start getting fuzzy-headed and sort of less productive. And I think that we work in a culture that assumes that overwork should be the norm, that sort of long hours are an expression of our passion, that you know, we will be on a faster learning curves or our careers will be steeper when we put more hours into them, and a set of expectations that hold us in the office, but, you know, which turn out to be incorrect and counterproductive. You know, thinking about productivity not as a function of time, but as a function of kind of intensity of effort. Thinking of it as something that you do more in bursts and that you balance with periods of rest. It turns out to be um, much more effective in the immediate run and much more effective in the long run. You're less likely to burn out, you'll have a longer career, and you'll have a more sustainable career. So Alex, what are four things people can do right now in their jobs to make them work smarter and better? Well, I think that the first thing is you got to take rest seriously, right? You know, we live in a world that is constantly confounding and confusing us, that is, you know, sort of organized to extract as much time and energy out of us as possible and to degrade the value of rest. And so I think we have to recognize that the rest that we get is the rest that we take. And we need to protect 
time for it and make time for it. Um, I think the second thing is recognizing the value of boundaries that, you know, we live in a world where you can carry your office around in your pocket. And we think this is kind of an awesome thing a little bit, but we also recognize that there are serious downsides to it. I think another thing is having a hobby or sort of exercise or something like that, that competes with work is actually a really good thing for professionals. The fourth thing I would recommend is that don't think of these kinds of things as things that just only you do. One of the big lessons that I've learned looking at companies that have moved to four-day weeks is that these things are a lot easier to implement and the results are much better if you're able to do it with other people you know, who see the benefits themselves and who can work with you so you can all make these changes together and you can all see these improvements together, that turns out to be fantastically powerful. And so with more people working from home, do you think that managers should be brave and throw presenteeism out the window when remote managing their staff and recommend this way of working then? You know, I think that if we're not going to do it now, then, you know, at a point when companies and individuals have demonstrated an amazing resilience in the face of tremendous challenges that they're never going to. I mean, I think we have a great opportunity right now, and maybe this is the only kind of upside of the pandemic, is that we've seen that, you know, what we thought were hard and fast ways of working turn out to be much more flexible. People are a lot more adaptable and organizations can be more adaptable than we ever thought possible. And discovering this at the tail end of a conversation that we've been having for years about global inequality, about the challenges of capitalism, about the culture of overwork, and you know how to fix these things, we now see that actually these things are fixable and that these kinds of big challenges can actually be addressed and solved in relatively short order, partly if we have the will, and if circumstances demand it. And I think that the discovery that you know, flexible work and remote work are possible in industries or in companies where you know, we would have thought never could happen, the discovery that we can do in four days or in six hours what we thought we needed five days or 50 hours to do, it makes it clear that we can redesign work and we can make work better for everyone and that we can build upon the experiences of the pandemic to make a future for work that is better for companies, that's better for people, and ultimately is also better for the economy and the environment. Thanks so much, Alex. You bet, Lisa. It was a real pleasure. Dr. Alex Pang, and Alex's latest book is Shorter, Work Better, Smarter and Less. Here's how. You're listening to This Working Life on RN, and I'm Lisa Leong. Now, there's little I love more than books about work. I often fall asleep with one. And my next guest is a woman after my own heart. Steph Clark is a facilitator and team coach, and she also does a podcast devoted to business books. Now, Steph, you're here to share one of your favourite books. What is it? So one of my favourite work-related books, and one that I recommend a lot, is It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work by Jason Fried and David Heinemeyer Hansen. They are the founders of a tech company called Basecamp. And Basecamp is a technology platform that allows teams to collaborate, to communicate, and basically to get things 
I won't use the other word, done. <laughs> so what did you find? How would you summarise it for someone who's never read it, i.e. me? <laughs> the, the way I would summarise it is throw everything we know about work in the bin <laughs> would be the, the best way of probably summing it up, which really appeals to me because I tend to take a bit of a slash and burn approach to uh, to changing things. But the the thing I, or the, the way I would then also describe it is, it's about challenging the fundamental principles that govern or seem to govern the way we work right now. So the, the the glorification of the hustle and busyness and, and they they talk about the fact that they have built a calm company. And that is one of the things that sets them apart. It's not about the goals. It's not about crazy targets. And it's not about pulling all-nighters and all of that stuff that just gets in the way. They're all about just doing your best work on a daily basis. Hold on. So this is like a new type of business, right? An internet business that isn't actually fueled by long hours. Now this that's quite incredible to hear. So what have they done to create a calm company then, Steph? I'm intrigued. Well the, the reason that they've been successful in creating a calm company is because they've they've seen their company and one of the concepts that I love in the book, other than the calm over chaos, is that your company should be your best product. So it's all about testing, especially as a tech company, obviously, you know, they're all about testing, tweaking, seeing what works. They've tried some of the things, you know, they've tried some of the different models and frameworks and ways of working. And then they've taken the best bits and decided actually this is the thing that works for us because it meets our, you know, lives with our, with the way we think work should work. It absolutely helps us get the real work done. And it is all about, yeah, that, that idea of, of calm over chaos and just focusing on doing great work. So if uh, we go with the principle, your company is a product, mm. can you name, like, uh, hit me with a principle that is derived from that then? What did they actually do? Yeah. So one of them is around the the idea that they don't, meetings should be a last resort. So this is probably something that would resonate with a lot of people <laughs> in the, one of the biggest ideas or biggest challenges probably for a lot of people is the amount of meetings they're, they're going to. And I know that's definitely the case at the moment because we've just transported everything into Zoom or into Teams or Hangouts or whatever. So their idea or their concept is meetings should always be a last resort, which I love. And they're all about then instead they've taken almost best practices or practices from other areas. So for them, they've taken the idea of office hours from academia and so they say like, you know, managers or t project leads or whatever would have office hours. So maybe a two hour slot on a Tuesday afternoon and a Thursday morning, for example, any questions and any issues get, get sorted out then. So you don't have to have a meeting every time. They've always just got these drop-in sessions uh. and anything that is super urgent. Obviously, you know, they do say, you know, sometimes something will fall over and, you know, disasters happen, but generally... It means you, everyone is getting work done without constantly being interrupted by meetings and you're not just doing work in the cracks of time. And if we're not running a company or if we don't have a whole company to play with, Steph, what's something, you know, personal that you put into your work life that you got from this book? The idea, I think, that eight hours is plenty. And it's really easy, in, I know, from, from running my own, um, my own business for a period of time, that it's really easy if you're working on your own to just kind of everything bleeds into everything else and you end up working 10, 11, 12 plus hour days because there's always work to do. So their idea or their concept of eight hours being plenty means that if you do eight really good hours of work, and they use eight quite roughly, you know, they're like if it's six, if it's seven, whatever, you know. But if you do eight hours of really great focused work, which is your best work at the best times without all of these interruptions, that 
will be more than enough time to get something really meaningful done. Beautiful. Shall I share my book now? Please do. I love this book. So I'm excited to hear what you what you bring. The Obstacle is the Way. Ryan Holiday. I know you've read it because I think you've done a little spot on it as well. Uh-huh. So I'll just share a little bit about Ryan Holiday for people who may not know this book. So he's a really interesting cat, isn't he, Steph? Because he's the author of like a dozen books. One is The Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, Stillness is the Key. Are we getting a bit of a flavour here? (laughs) He kind of translates ancient uh, philosophy, doesn't he, Um, in a really accessible way. And the reason why I think he's an interesting cat is that um, he was the director of marketing at American Apparel, which is like a massive organisation and he just found it really tough. He actually said that it was the chaos and the conflict that shaped him as a person and it was kind of a survival thing for him. So he hurt and through that he turned to stoicism the ancient Greek philosophy, and it's basically about enduring pain or adversity by looking at things within your control with perseverance and resilience. And don't we need a bit of that right now? So I'll just go through the central premise, which is from one of the original Stoic philosophers, Marcus Aurelius. The impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way, right? So the obstacle which stands in the way becomes the pathway. And so it's this reframing, isn't it, about um, what gets thrown up in the workplace. I think an example of that for me was that when COVID happened and, you know, Maria and I couldn't go into the studio. So it meant that, you know, having a chat to you, I I can't do it face to face. And I, you know, I was a bit sad about that. And I was thinking about all the bad things about how I couldn't connect with people. But uh, The way this book works is that you reframe your perception of things, don't you? So that's the first step. And I find it really powerful because you think, okay, the obstacle is we can't go in face to face, but what are the benefits? What's another way I can look at this? And so what it offered us was the ability to do interviews outside the normal studio hours. So it actually opens up the world to us. So one morning, um, you know, we're chatting to someone at Harvard in Boston and, you know, the next day in the afternoon, we can speak to someone at INSEAD in France. And here I am speaking to you. So, you know, for me, it's kind of simple, isn't it? but it's powerful. Mm. What are your thoughts on the book? The thing I really liked about the book is that, or the thing I like about his work generally is is the practical solution focus that he has with bringing really ancient philosophy to life in the modern way. And the thing that's amazing, and I don't know if you found this as well, is how relevant and how these ancient philosophers and Roman emperors and things were suffering with imposter syndrome and were suffering with worries about not doing enough and productivity concerns and things as well. And you just think, oh, wow, they they had no idea. (laughs) But the thing sometimes I find more challenging with it, and I don't it'd be good to hear what you thought of this, is how do I actually bring this to life? So, for example, Lisa, if I've got a manager that is causing me pain at the moment, how do I see that as the obstacle being the way? What would you do? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's that idea of reframing it. So instead of um, getting around the person, you think, well, if, you know, if this person is in front of me for a reason, if I see this as a reason, what is it actually throwing up about my own self that I need to bring awareness to? What do you think about that? That's awesome. I like that. 
it's there's a, another book which is a really fantastic one which is for another podcast called reboot by jerry colonna who's a ceo and he's the sort of startup ceo whisperer i think they call him or something like that so he's an executive coach and i so, love yeah. i love reboot yeah. yeah it's great isn't it but the question that he has that i've used a number of times which reminds me of that is basically how am i contributing to the situation or how am i complicit in creating the conditions that i say i don't want which to me is it's almost the the wordier version of the obstacle is the way but it's how am i contributing to this problem thank you so much steph thanks lisa great to chat books steph clark and her podcast is steph's business bookshelf Thanks for your company today. This is the final in our series focused on helping you perform your best at work. If you missed any of the series, all the other episodes are available on our podcast. Catch up on experts' advice on signs you're experiencing burnout, conquering distraction from tech, and how to feed your brain to think better. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle, who's avoiding burnout by taking two weeks deliberate rest and turning off all tech. Oh, who am I going to speak with? I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.